0: Really the but, um, it does get confusing. Um, I am one of the music leaders uh, here at Freshwater. Uh, not a pastor, but I am on the track to eldership. Track to the track to eldership, uh, however you want to put it. But uh, part of that is I am learning to to teach. Uh, I'm being kind of uh, guided, instructed in that way uh, by the elders of our church. And I'm excited to be able to participate in that this morning as well. Uh, and this morning we're going to be actually in Revelation chapter 19. So if you want to turn there, we'll be in verses 6 through 9. Um, if you don't have a physical Bible or a form on your phone, i have got some sheets. Uh, I'll be talking about those here in a bit. Um, that will kind of be a little bit helpful anyway to have just so we don't have to take a whole bunch of time to turn there. But if you feel so inclined, be my guest. Please do. Please do. If that's the way you feel, please do that. So, um, But yeah, we'll be in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. I'll read it now. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. All right, yeah, so Freshwater has the tradition uh, that during the Christmas slash New Year season, Typically, the Sunday before Christmas is when we focus on the first Advent, or the story of Christmas of Christ. Uh, Advent just means arrival. Then, on the following Sunday, what we do is we focus on the second coming of Christ, or the second Advent, before we go into a different sermon series following that in the New Year. This holiday was different, (laughs) because Christmas and New Year's Day both fell on Sunday, so today is both New Year's Day and the Sunday after Christmas. That being said, The subject is today, as you can probably tell, the Second Coming or the Second Advent. Freshwater Church holds to the belief that Jesus will return one day to complete his work of unity to his people. This year, however, we're going to be looking at it through the lens of the Gospel of John, as we've been in a series in John for the past about 15 months. Um, We're actually going back to that series here next week. Conveniently enough for us, though, the writer of John is also the writer of Revelation, and Revelation is a book with a lot of information about the second advent. And when JT asked me to teach on this topic, I was admittedly surprised at how comfortable I felt about it. Don't get me wrong, I didn't tell him, hey JT, don't worry about it, I'm gonna nail it. this why like, uh, The end times and the second coming is a notoriously difficult subject on which to preach. But I was less nervous than I expected to be, because we've been studying a lot of the basic building blocks for today's passage for the last 15 months. What I mean is that in John, in his account of the time that Jesus was on the earth, he lays out a few basic ideas that he emphasizes repeatedly throughout the book of John. Then in Revelation, he brings back these ideas and weaves them together in a very poetic and profound way. I'm a musician, so I'll use this analogy. Keep in mind, this is an oversimplification, but the point still stands. In Western music, there are 12 notes total. That's it. There's only 12. Now, they can be played in you know, higher or lower, but but essentially there's only 12 options to choose from when you're deciding what note to play. And I see God, through John, establishing these notes in the book of John. Then throughout the rest of that gospel, to, to a more obvious degree, in the book of Revelation, those notes get stacked on top of each other to create some sort of orchestral symphony that continues to blow people's minds for generations into eternity. And I also see God doing this throughout all of Scripture, but as the Apostle John is the writer of both John and Revelation, it seems most obvious in this period, and these basic principles in John and the rest of the Bible get expounded on and referenced continually throughout Revelation. I thought it'd be nice for the production team and print out sheets of all the texts that I will be using today. As one, I will be going through a lot of texts, and two, I wasn't sure what we were going to have available to us here. Uh, thank you to my mother. She's the one that's been running the slides and has allowed us to be here today. So, um,
1: but I, I thought it'd be nice to her, too. Uh, so I printed off some sheets that we have. If you don't have
0: one, you can, you can find them with with my wife, and uh, maybe some other people. So. Um, yeah, so let's see here. Most of them are in John. Uh, if you want to get a head start, we're actually going to be starting in John chapter two. The reason we're going to John right now is so we can see these elements that God has set up to reappear in our Revelation text today. If we go back to the music analogy, we're hoping to learn what these notes are in John that God uses to write part of the symphony that we see in Revelation. There are three major themes in today's Revelation passage uh, that were foreshadowed throughout the whole of the Bible and specifically in the works of John. And we're going to try to flesh those out uh, as they appear in John and the Old Testament. Here's what we're going to look at. Number one, Jesus is worthy of worship as the divine bridegroom to the people of God. Two, Jesus is worthy of worship as the true and better Passover lamb. And three, Jesus is worthy of worship as the Lord God and ruler of all. So we'll be reading, starting in John chapter 2 here in a minute, to see how Jesus is portrayed as the divine bridegroom. But before we do, I'm going to provide a bit of cultural context to the specifics of a wedding in ancient Hebrew culture. So first century Hebrew weddings had two ceremonies in the marriage process. The first was a betrothal ceremony, uh, which was a big feast where the groom would give a gift to the bride, and, and they would go through a ritual cleansing process that kind of looked a bit like what we would call baptism uh, today. And This baptism was, was a ritual of identity change. Once this baptism occurred, uh, the bride would be considered to have her husband's identity in the form of his name, and they would recite their vows, and from that point on, the couple was considered married in the legal sense, but they didn't live together sleep together, as they were also considered not yet married in the truest sense. Think of uh, Mary and Joseph when Joseph sought to divorce her quietly, but they weren't fully married yet, so this is still, still required divorce Um, At this point, the husband would set off to build a home for himself and his wife. Usually this home was built onto the house he was already living in, his father's house. Uh, There there wasn't really a set amount of time for this part of the process. It usually took about a year, but as far as she knew, it could be any time after the betrothal ceremony. When he was done, he would call to his fiance, his bride, his wife, that it was time to begin the actual wedding. And this wedding ceremony would last an entire week. Typically the festivities would begin on the fourth day of the Hebrew calendar week which is Wednesday and the whole family would feast and a party together for 6 days and then they would invite the rest of the surrounding community to the final celebration ceremony on Tuesday or what they call the third day of the week and this is where our text in John 2 begins let's read in John 2 starting with verse 1 On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the beast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, that you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his times, Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what does any of that have to do with Jesus being a bridegroom? So note, an important detail in the passage here. Looking again at verse 9, where it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and we went drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Why does the master of the feast approach the groom to compliment the wine that Jesus made? First of all, he didn't know where it came from, and actually, it's a perfectly reasonable reaction. See, the responsibility of providing the wine fell to the bridegroom. It was up to him to ensure that the wedding party had enough wine to drink. So when more wine showed up, the master of the feast made the reasonable assumption that the groom was the one who supplied it. But we know that wasn't the case. Jesus supplied the wine. Where the bridegroom of the wedding of Cana failed, Jesus stepped in and succeeded. Not only that, but he supplied a wine that was better than any other. He over-succeeded. So if we read this passage with the understanding that the provision of the wine is the responsibility of the bridegroom, it takes on a bit of a different weight. When Jesus' mother tells Jesus that this wedding party had run out of wine, Jesus' response might have a bit of a different implication. His response might also be read as this. What does this have to do with me? This is a my wedding. And Jesus further submits that point by his method of making the wine. Jesus knows that his marriage to his bride is still yet to come. This isn't time for wedding feast yet. This is the time for betrothal. Note that the jars used to gather the water were also used for those betrothal baptisms I mentioned earlier. And he gathers up water in basins that were used for ritual purification water then he uses that cleansing water to divinely make good wine instantaneously for the people to drink essentially the implication is this jesus in his kindness is bailing this groom out by taking on the responsibility of the bridegroom by providing the wine while simultaneously and symbolically performing the betrothal ritual of cleansing for humanity who, by the way, of the church, will become his bride? Furthermore, Jesus doesn't pour this water-made wine over the people. He doesn't merely cleanse their outside. He gives it to them to consume, to drink. One might read this and see that he's cleansing these people internally. Keep in mind, John calls this action the first of Jesus' signs. This is not to say that this wine was literal salvation for these people, but. Merely a symbol of what was to come very soon. Jesus' atonement for them on the cross that is available to those who would be Jesus' bride. Now you might be thinking I'm making a stretch. And that's fine. Some of you might think just because Jesus did something that a bridegroom does, doesn't make him a bridegroom. And you would be right, that's true. So let's turn the page and look at John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So now John the Baptist is referring to Jesus as the bridegroom. When John's disciples point out that John's following is diminishing as people begin to follow Jesus, John points out that he's glad for it. He reminds them. That he told them he wasn't the Christ. He was just there to point to and testify to Christ. Then he says something profound. He tells his disciples that the bride is now with the bridegroom. Now that Jesus is here, John's role for preparation is done. Everything is in the groom's hands now. So John the Baptist sees Jesus as this bridegroom figure. And if he is a bridegroom, what would be the next course of action? betrothal ceremony, the bride was to prepare and wait as the bridegroom would go to his father's house and make an additional living space for his new bride. Let's look at John 14, verses 1 through 3. i will give be second to turn there. That's your method. Uh, it's also on the sheet. John 14, 1 through 3. Just before this passage, Jesus reminds the apostles of something he said a couple of times before. He told them he's going away and they won't be able to follow him to where he's going. Now the apostles have been with Jesus for a little while now and they they still don't understand what this could possibly mean. So this time, John elaborates a little bit. Or Jesus elaborates a little bit. Let's read John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also now we're getting a fuller picture remember when we talked about the wedding at Cana in chapter 2 that we said that this sign that Jesus performed was exactly that a sign but a sign by nature points to something else after Jesus tells the apostles he's going to prepare a place for them he speaks for the next three chapters straight on a unity that the apostles had with God, in him, Jesus Christ. And this language is so saturated in language that focuses heavily on the unity that's, that's supernatural, and it's God joining them together. And this union of, of marriage, it, marriage is the only other relationship that comes close to being spoken of so deeply and profoundly, besides one. The only other relationship that has been spoken of so deeply is the relationship between God and these people, between God and Israel. But the thing is, God uses marriage-based language to describe that relationship, too. After leading Israel out of Egypt, God met Moses on top of a mountain and made a covenant with Israel. He gave them his commandments and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And in relation to that covenant, Israel consistently failed to keep up their end of things. There, that is a three-sentence synopsis of the entire Old Testament, so you can take that and keep it. Uh, But for our purposes today, it's important to realize that God would always hold up his end of the game. Constantly be working to reconcile his bride to himself. The words he uses to describe this lopsided relationship often look like this in Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And in Jeremiah three twenty, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is the people of God, Israel, and they keep betraying. They prove themselves incapable of following God on their own merit. What can be done to stop this betrayal? Let's look at Jeremiah thirty one verses thirty one through thirty three. So God's plan is to cleanse his bride from the inside. This has always been his plan. No longer will his people be marked by stubbornness or spiritual adultery. They will be seen as his people. They will be made righteous. But how can this be? How how will God do this? What's the method? This is where our second theme comes in. Jesus is worthy of worship as the true and better. Passover. Passover is the name for the holiday in which the descendants of Israel celebrate their liberation from Egyptian slavery. This method that God used to set his people free was sending ten plagues against Egypt and against Pharaoh. The first nine plagues proved God's power and authority over all creation and punished Pharaoh by the destruction of Egyptian land and property. And the tenth plague God sent the angel of death, or quote-unquote, the destroyer. This angel would go throughout the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn male in each household. There was an exception, however. God told his people to do something very specific. Exodus 12 has a list of requirements for a sacrifice, but this wasn't a typical sacrifice. God told Moses that households of his people should take the blood of the lamb and paint their doorposts with it. When the destroyer saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house and not deliver the judgment of God's wrath. In short, this lamb was a sacrifice that was made to spare the lives of God's people. The sacrifice, however, had some very specific requirements. I'm just going to list them, but as as I said, these can be found uh, in Exodus chapter 12 and then again in chapter 13. But this lamb was to be one-year-old, male, without spot or blemish, chosen on the tenth day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, Sacrificed at twilight on the 14th day of that month. Its blood was then put on the doorpost and they were to roast it. Boiling, boiling it or eating it raw. No ghost, can't do that. Had to be eaten in the home with unleavened bread. None of its bones were to be broken. And it was to be fully consumed as quickly as possible so Israel could hightail it out of Egypt. That sounds like a lot of bizarre stipulations. <laughs> but God gave them for good reason. Many of these requirements were to protect Israel from... Destruction. God wanted to protect his people from the destroyer and from Pharaoh. He knew that after this meal, his people were going to be chased out of Egypt by an entire army, so these limitations actually make a lot of sense. However, I want to point something out. This Passover in Egypt that God's people celebrated for generations is indeed amazing. It's a, it's a true display of God's power and grace. But what if I told you that the Passover in Egypt was a mere shadow? Of what his master plan had in store the first passover was a foreshadowing of the true and better passover that would occur in the time of christ's ministry on earth by the way of the crucifixion let's see what john has to say in regards to jesus being the perfect passover in john 129 we see the apostle john speaking of john the baptist and then in the next day, this is john 129 The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, John the Baptist, two for two. Uh, What I love about this statement from him is that he repeats it again in verse 35, behold, the Lamb of God. And somehow that one sentence sermon was enough to compel Andrew and Peter to follow Jesus. And that's kind of beside the point, but only kind of, because some of you might be wondering how John the Baptist saying this has anything to do with Passover, and that would be fair. Things were used all the time to atone for for sin, not just a Passover. So how do we know Jesus is specifically a Passover lamb? Well, I have good news. John isn't too terribly subtle about this fact. Uh, In John chapter 19, he reminds the reader three separate times that the day of Jesus' death was the day of preparation. I'll try not to spoil too much, but uh, this is where we're going pretty soon. Uh, But this phrase has two significant meanings, the day of preparation. Uh, it's a phrase often used to describe the day before Sabbath. It can be Friday, so day of preparation can just mean Friday. Most of the time, that's all it means. But John wants to highlight something specific here. The phrase day of preparation can also refer to the day before the Passover feast. Let's look at John chapter 18, verse 28. i will you a second to turn it there, if that's what you're doing. This passage showed uh, shows the Jewish leaders delivering Jesus to Pilate, John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So the, they hadn't eaten the Passover yet. This was the day of preparation before the Passover, the day that the lamb was to be slaughtered and tried. If that wasn't enough, John gives us one more detail that really drives the point home. Uh, Let's read starting at John 19, verse 31. John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the the cross, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, I think specifically the Passover, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other, two, the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now there's a psalm that David wrote about how God will preserve the righteous and God will protect them and not one of their bones will be broken. And it's certainly true that Jesus is righteous. Therefore, we know that anything God says about the righteous is true of Jesus as well. But I want to call back to the Passover lamb in Exodus. One of the instructions, very specific instructions given to Moses in regards to the Passover lamb was that none of its bones were to be broken. You see a lot of this linking of Jesus to the Passover. So what? Why does that matter? What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Remember that God loves his bride. Right. He wants reconciliation. He intends to achieve that by changing their hearts and saving them from the slavery, slavery of sin. And on that day of preparation, people prepared for the Sabbath, people prepared for the Passover, And Jesus prepared his bride for eternity with him. In the same way that Moses was told to paint the doorposts of the homes of Israel with the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus instructed his followers to paint his blood on their hearts. Because he lived a life without sin. He is the spotless lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice that paid for the sins of the people of God and told God to pass over them on the day of judgment. Our sins have already been judged on the cross. In, in John chapter 6, Jesus gives a statement about how he is the bread of life. In him is life eternal. So much so that he intends to give this bread of life to the world, and that bread is his flesh. The Jews didn't appreciate this metaphor. Uh, Jesus responds to them in John six fifty three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And all the people hearing this found this statement to be a strange one, an uncomfortable one, (laughs) and I don't blame them. It's weird, but we do have the upper hand in church. We know the rest of the story. If Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, we can take some of this imagery and apply it. The Passover lamb was to be eaten. Why? It sustained the life of the people of Israel, kept their body functional. Eating does that. It's life giving. Jesus is saying that he himself is the source of life. But the blood of the Passover lamb was to be painted on the doorpost, so why is Jesus telling them to drink it? And now we've come full circle. Remember that God wants his bride back. He wants her to be purified, and he wants to write his law on her heart. Now, Jesus is not being literal. The crowd was indignant at what they thought Jesus was saying because they suggested he was teaching cannibalism. But I would argue that if they knew what he was actually saying, it would be even
1: harder for them to accept. The blood of Jesus is
0: infinitely more powerful than the blood of a baby sheep or a a goat. The only thing that brings them into the same category is imagery. Jesus' blood is the be-all, end-all sacrifice. The sheep blood protected one Israelite family from one source of destruction at one time. It's the blood of Jesus, who is the Lamb protects all of his people from all of his enemies for all of time, including sin itself, including death itself. So where do we this is great news, where do we paint that blood? He proposes that he paint it inside of him. We should paint this blood on our hearts. May the hearts of the Bride of Christ be protected and transformed to those worthy of His majesty. But our hearts are full of sin and rebellion. We're no better than Israel. The only kind of heart that we can hope to present is full of sin. The door to our heart is wide open to destruction and death, but God wants to change the hearts of His Bride. He wants to paint the blood of the Lamb on our hearts. Then, on the day of judgment, He will pass over us. He can judge our sin without condemning us to death. Paul seems to really grasp this concept in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We call this concept double imputation. Imputation just means an assignment of value. Jesus is the bridegroom. The imputation that he gives us is the righteousness that he has. It's identity. As the bride of Christ, we get to take on his righteousness, even though we're sinful humans. We get the benefit of being considered righteous when we are examined by the Almighty God, but I call this imputation double imputation. The second one is the imputation of our sin onto Jesus. Again, it just means assignment of value in the same way that the Passover lamb protects the people of Israel from being destroyed during the 10th plague. Jesus protects us from sin and death. The blood of a sheep protected Israel from a momentary judgment. But the blood of the lamb protects us from eternal condemnation. The punishment of our sin was taken by Jesus, imputed onto Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He's sinless. He's spotless. The will of God to keep his bride from death and sin, was to take on the penalty of sin himself. In doing so, his perfect, his, his absolutely perfect wrath and justice were satisfied. Jesus paid the price for our sin. The value of the cost of our sin was paid by Jesus. And this shouldn't be lost over. This is The, the combination of this value change is the gospel, right? This, that's the central element of the gospel in, in Jesus Christ. And these remarkable prophecies and realities about the gospel could only be fulfilled by Jesus if the third point today were 100% true, and that is point three, theme three. Jesus is worthy of worship as Lord God and ruler of all. And while we could go back to John the Baptist and prove his record is three for three, and believe me, we, we could uh, by dissecting a bunch of just statements through the first three chapters of John, but I digress. The point is actually best made in our Revelation passage today. As the saints sing their song to God for the great things he has done and is doing, yes, but also for who he is. He is bridegroom, lamb, and king. And to return to the music analogy, it's this grouping of these notes that creates such a beautiful song. It's a literal song in our Revelation text today. Let's look again at Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. So we see that the first reason listed for this psalm of the saints is this. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Why hallelujah? For the Lord God the Almighty reigns. And Jesus has brought about this true reign of God. In his reign, Jesus brought peace, love, kindness, forgiveness, and worthiness. And he shall be praised because he is worthy of praise as the king and ruler of all. But on top of that. The things that he's done should make worship the natural response. Yeah. Not only is he worthy, righteous, and good, but he's also kind, merciful, and loving. Something that really stands out to me is this idea that the bride has made herself ready. How do we do that? Remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He said this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that we contribute nothing to this encounter. (laughs) We still benefit from the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, Revelation even tells us this. Notice that the right to clothe ourselves in righteousness has been granted to us. Praise God, this is such great news. No wonder the bride is so rowdy and rambunctious. We are made righteous because the king has decreed that it should be so. And also, this is a kindness that he's given to us. The, bu- the bridegroom will return to gather his bride. He will unite us to himself in the most complete fashion. All the married people know this. Your marriage to your spouse is a mere shadow of the unity and love we will have with Christ for eternity. It's a beautiful shadow, but it's it's simply that. It's it's it pales completely in comparison. The lamb will return to display the effects of his saving sacrifice. Evil will be destroyed, but it has been granted to us to clothe ourselves with righteousness. The blood of the lamb has transformed us into beings that God will pass over during his judgment of the wicked. And the king will return to display his reign over the world, and our response should and will be joy. Oftentimes, a major point of sermons on the second coming is really harps on evangelism. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I agree that evangelism is a right response to the text in Revelation. The events that happen in the end times to the people that don't believe are truly terrifying. But I'm focusing on the hope that is to come for two reasons. For really three reasons. Advent is a season of hope and joy. And two, our hope and joy we have in Christ shouldn't (laughs) actually result in evangelism. The third point is, it's just more fun to preach on happy things. Uh, but, uh, the, really, the, the first two are the most important ones. Our hope and our joy we have in Christ should naturally result in evangelism. Imagine dwelling on these truths as you go about your daily life in the amazing way God has orchestrated reality. Imagine responding in worship as often as you think about it. Well, we will be, just by nature, telling people about Jesus so that they might escape eternal punishment, yes. but. Also, telling them so that they get to be a part of this, they get to participate in this, in the marriage supper of the way. Let's use our joyful worship as a method of evangelism. Uh, one of our worship leaders, actually, Sammy, didn't ask him, sorry. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's uh, one of the leaders of our ministry here at Freshwater. And he, he pointed something out to me a couple years ago that I haven't really been able to get out of my head since. Um, we're going to sing a song here in a minute or so. Uh, everyone's heard this song you're all familiar with it it's joy to the world uh, and some of you might be thinking wait well, that's a christmas song this is the new year christmas is over uh, but what samuel passed along to me is this joy to the world is more about the second coming than it is about the first coming. doesn't mean you can't sing it on christmas by all means go for it but it's better fitted to the second coming <laughs> uh, i think if we consider how jesus reveals his second coming the song fits better with that idea so i'll have the music team on up and i guess my daughter come on up and, uh,
1: as we pray be thinking of the of the lyrics
0: to the song as as a part of the second coming we get to have joy because we know what's going to happen we're going to participate in this marriage supper this is exciting it's great news and we should respond in joy and i think that that's really one of the true elements of, of worshiping through song that we we need to think harder about i need to think harder about and this is, mostly what I do, Uh, but it's such a joy that we get to consider what Jesus has done, yes, and also what he's going to do because he's good. So let's pray as we think of the joy set before us as we wait for Jesus to return to prove his goodness, his glory, and his righteousness. Let's pray. God, you're so good. Uh, Please let that truly sink into our hearts. Please let us really see better exactly how kind you are and how worthy you are and how good you are and god i pray that our response will be genuine joyful worship as we see your majesty in the way you've orchestrated all things and your your beauty in the way that you are so kind and your worthiness as ruler of all god please let those realities become more known, I guess, more more appreciated as we see you and your goodness and your word. thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name.